why we have two readings today, or we've had two readings in the past, is because we're sort of trying to walk through the Gospel of Mark to get a, a picture of its shape and character. And so these two miracles, I think, sort of feed into what Mark is trying to tell us about who Jesus is. Now, it, this is an odd question, but how many of you are still shocked by hypocrisy in yourself and in others? Yeah, I mean, I was uh, part of what I wanted to say at the start is is sort of to think about the ways in which Jesus functions as a person. So, like, there's a preacher. I don't do this, and I think there's good reason why I don't do it. Is is I wonder what Jesus is thinking right now is not something that particularly I think is a question we should ask. And so, what happens as humans, and that's why I started with the question of Are you still shocked by hypocrisy? in yourself and in others, because it's sort of the default mode of human existence after the fall, is that we have things that we proclaim, that we say we want to live up to, that, that we hold as dear, and that we live divided from them. We don't actually always match up to those things. We sort of live in this divide between intentions and who we are and how we exist in the world. And, and sort of the normal language for this would be sin. You know, we live this divided sort of life. What I want to say about Jesus before we really dive into this is that Jesus doesn't live that way. Jesus lives in the unity of intention and purpose and the unity of his actions. So when we look at Jesus and we go, I wonder what he's thinking, is it's what he's doing. He's not thinking anything other. He lives in that. We have that sort of double-sidedness to us. I'm thinking something different than what I'm doing. Um, you know, if we all knew what we were thinking about while we were singing the worship songs, we'd probably all stop hanging out together. Um, we have that. But Christ sort of lives in this unity of what he's doing and what he's thinking or who he is. And this is part of what it means to be fully human and fully divine. And so what he opens up for us in sort of the Christian phrase is the ability to live reconciled lives. And so when we talk about sin, we talk about how sin divides us from, there's sort of three very clear areas where we see sin active. It divides us from God, divides us from our neighbor, and it divides us from ourselves. And so when we say as Christians that Christ invites us to live reconciled lives, he invites us to live reconciled lives to God. He invites us to live reconciled lives to our neighbor. And the reason for this long introduction to the sermon is he invites us to live reconciled lives to ourselves, to no longer always live in that divide. It's still going to be there, but that, that he invites us to be reconciled even to ourselves. And through his perfect humanity, he opens up all these for us. And so that's just a little bit to say about when we think about it. We don't preach on these passages or think about these passages very often because we generally think about what Jesus says. And what Jesus does is a little bit harder, minus dying. We, we can talk about that a lot. But what he does, we don't quite see as much. And so these passages are what Jesus does. Now, when we started this series, I talked about what does it mean to be a good reader of Scripture or a good reader of anything. Now, there are people in the world who will ruin anything, everything, that you read or watch on TV. Does anybody remember the show Lost? The, the show Lost had, a, you would say it was very thick with meaning, 
because the, the guy uh, would be sitting on the beach reading a book, uh, and one of the scenes, he's reading the book Watership Down. Now, uh, many people, when we watch TV, we go, oh, that's funny, and then we just move on. Oh, but Watership Down is about these rabbits sort of surviving on their own after they break out of someplace in the world, and Lost is about people surviving after a train wreck with all these different characters happening. Like, there's, and so when you become sort of, like, awake to reading, and sometimes it's just nice to enjoy something and not to have to ask all these questions, so I'm not saying you have to do this all the time, but when you sort of move into a space of sort of, like, becoming a good reader, you begin to notice the connections that people make. One of the, one of the famous ways they do this with, like, teenage movies is, is that the, you walk into, the, they show you the kid's room, and then by the posters on the wall, you get a sense of who they are. Oh, it's Justin Timberlake. She's into this. Oh, it's Kiss or uh, Van Halen. Oh, he's a he's a a kid who's into retro stuff. Like it's the, one of the cheapest ways to sort of add meaning to the story, or to develop a character. But one of the things that happens in both these passages is that is they are very thick with meaning. From the passage, the first passage, the the calming of the storm, you can jump to about a hundred different texts in the Old Testament to sort of ask, what does, the, what does the, the, the stilling of the storm mean? One of them, Park read, or, yeah, Park read for us, was the one from Job that I love, where he says to the sea, where were you when, when we laid out the sea and said to it that this is as far as you go and this is where your proud waves stop? You look at that and then you look at what Jesus does when he gets up on the boat and he says, be still. Both these stories have a lot of sort of webs of meaning we can throw out to different points in the Old Testament. And I think one of the most important parts of sort of when we consider these two texts is to really, and I think it's a challenge for, for all of us, although we're all here, is to really ask this question, is God in Jesus active in the world? Has God taken the form of human likeness? Because this, this is a side note, that the, 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 the feeding one, you know, if you went to a, if you grew up in a progressive sort of mainline church like I did, they talk about the feeding one. It's like what Jesus does is he invites the disciples to bring the stuff up, and then he hands the food out, and then everybody around sees them doing that and begins to hand the food out to each other, and then that's how this miracle works is that it's within us which I think is a very bad reading of that miracle. But that's one of the tensions we have when we come to these texts is to sort of ask ourselves, is God active in Jesus, reconciling and revealing the world to himself or revealing the world to us that he is here? Because if, if you're sort of like, it's hard to discern that, then the miracle texts become very problematic. But if God is really, in fact, active in Jesus, it's not that they become easy and you just go, oh, I believe in it because it's God. But you begin to see that that God is a God who calms storms for his people. We could find that in the Psalms. You could find areas where it's like, this is God incarnate showing us what we've always known about God. So the feeding one, you could go back to Exodus, the, the manna story, which we spent some time with this summer, and to look at the way in which the God fed the people of Israel. God is a God who's always sort of feeding these people. And so when they come together on this plane and Jesus asks them how much food they have, and this is, this is super interesting, is they say that we have five loaves and two fish. 
And, and Moses has these, they would say, these five books, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This is where, um, and we have these five loaves, and those books are often called bread for the, for the Jews. We have these five bo- loaves, and Jesus has already sort of named them as sheep without a shepherd, which is also Moses-like language. You can see how these texts just expand when you begin to push them into the biblical imagination. They just keep going out. And so we have these five loaves, and he's already mentioned that he sees them as sheep without a shepherd, and he's been teaching them, which is what Moses does in these things too. And so what happens is is that they break them and they feed all these people. If the God of Israel is active in Jesus Christ and his son, all of these things begin to at least make sense on why God would do them, on why God would reveal himself in this way. As many of them are, are tied back into the story. The resurrection, the breaking of the bonds of death is there as well. Sort of all of these things are what Jesus is saying is that he's enacting sort of the story of the God of Israel for the people of Israel who will now be the church. That God is going to become known in these ways and history is what's happening. If Jesus is not the God of Israel coming to to humanity incarnate, then these these questions become a lot harder. How do I believe in miracles? But what I want to say is that if we begin to sort of phrase ourselves in looking at Jesus through the lens of the story that God has been telling from the beginning, we begin to see that this just makes sense, that when God comes here, God would act in this way and do these types of things. Sorry, I'm reflecting for a second, because now we just covered most of the sermon. <laughs> and, 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 but you could pull it out in a bunch of different ways. So let's just look at the, the storm story first. The first question is, you know, they get in the boat, and the question is, where are they going? They're going to the other side of the lake. But as we read the Gospel of Mark, what they're doing is they're leaving sort of Jewish territory, where there was a high population of Jews, and going to Gentile territory. People who who the Jews would would call what we call like pagans. They're people who don't know the God of Israel. And so this scene starts with them, and and most of um, Mark's gospel at this point has taken place in Jewish territory. And so the first place he says is, let's go to the other side of the lake. This movement isn't just movement because Jesus wants to go for a cruise across the lake, but that Jesus in these next scenes is going to show that he's there not just to reach the Jew, but to also to reach the Gentile. He's going out into pagan territory to break open these truths for them as well. So Jesus goes across the lake. And so what happens is, is and this is, this is um, uh, I think, a, a great insight, is that Jesus is on the boat and he falls asleep. And this is the only reference in the New Testament of Jesus sleeping. Jesus falls asleep at the front of the boat. Now, to, to talk about how stories can get thick with meaning, you can go, right, who else falls to sleep on a boat? Jonah. Like, and Jonah is also told to go to people he doesn't want to go to who aren't Jews and he falls asleep on a boat, and what happens is the people on the boat wake Jonah up. Now, Jonah is fleeing God's purpose, whereas Christ is living into God's purpose. But see this, uh, 
All this to say is like the reason why this sermon just keeps sort of multiplying is because there's so many observations you can make from just these simple stories that draw us deeper into the stories that have already been told. And so, you know, this Jonah connection is that they come and they wake Jonah. And what happens is Jonah needs to be thrown over the board, of, over the side of the ship so that sailors can be saved and so that the storm can cease. In this story, Christ, is, as we see, offers himself up for a ship of sailors uh, in the end. But at the moment, they draw him to awake. Now, one of the things, if we were to go back into the Old Testament, is there's... There's this deep concern that the sleeping God may forget about Israel. If you read the Psalms, they're always saying, Arise, God, wake, don't forget our plight, don't forget who we are. The disciples, when they see Jesus asleep, and there's a great storm, there's a great calm, and then there's a great fear. The Greek word is the same in all three of these reactions in this text. In the middle of this great storm, they say, don't you care about us? Have you forgot about us? They awake Jesus. And what Jesus says to the storm is be still and be quiet, reminding us, I think, of that Job passage. And and in the Old Testament and in most of the literature at this time, pagan and Christian, only God can really control the storms or only seas or only... um, gods can control the seas like and he says without invoking like um magic or formula or anything like this he just says be still be quiet now if we were to go back into the book of mark this is the same greek word he uses when he casts out that first demon be muzzled shut up he says to the storm And what happens is the sea, which is raging, it says there was a great storm. There becomes a great calm, just like that. This is what's happened so far is that they've wakened Jesus to this truth. And Jesus, in his power and his authority, silences the sea with just two really simple words. Now, I think you could almost call it the exorcism at sea. Because the Jewish relationship to seas is not very good. They weren't a sailing people. The Phoenicians at this time were. The Jews were always kind of terrified of water. Um, And so what he's doing almost at the sea is also casting out either something like a demon or the powers of nature that have been frustrated since the fall. You could make it a lot of different ways. But what happens is, is that Jesus sort of casts out this storm and a great calm comes over the sea. The story doesn't end there. Um, they've, they've found that God does care for them. And Jesus turns to them after the sea has become calm. And he says, why are you afraid? Do you still not yet have faith? Do you not have the faith yet? What Jesus has revealed here for the disciples and for for us is that the that the sleeping God doesn't leave us alone. That God actually, when He sleeps, is still patiently caring for us. Why are you afraid? Were you that concerned, having seen what I've done? Now, what I think is is almost more amazing about this passage, as we think about it, is that God doesn't just calm storms. God, when he comes to earth, is in the storms with us. God has not made himself immune from storms. 
I think in our lives, you know, we often think God's up there and we're down here and what God can know about my frustrations, my hurts, my angst and loneliness. How much can God really know? But what we know on this side of the cross, on this side of the resurrection, is that God has come into this place and has done that with us. We don't have a high priest who isn't able to relate to us in the storms. God has entered into those places with us. And so he says, have you not had the faith yet? Which seems like a question for the disciples, but it's also a question for us. As the readers are going along in the book of Mark, one of the questions that takes up pretty much the whole first half of the gospel and continues into the second half is, who is Jesus? The disciples, the readers, the crowds, the scribes, the Pharisees are all asking this question. And I think us as the readers of the text should also be asking that question as well. Have we yet been convinced, reading this story, that this is the one who is with God? Now, I think he's, he's asking that because, at the, as we've sort of talked about, is what makes this manifest is the end, the crucifixion, that God has sort of, sort of revealed that. It's a confession that's only possible in a lot of ways by humans after the cross. But the question of why are you afraid brings us to this idea of doubt. And I know maybe you've heard this before, that doubt isn't the opposite of faith. I mean, if, it were, if doubt, doubt is the opposite of certainty, but doubt isn't the opposite of faith. Now, I'm not one of the people who likes to sort of uh, fetishize doubt. Like, like, let's live with our doubt. Let's make uh, doubt a home for us. Let's, you know, doubt's a part of life. I mean, that's all true, but there's only so much you really want to say about that because it's like, welcome, welcome to living. <laughs> welcome to being a person. Um, but doubt isn't the opposite of faith. What I think the Bible always tells us is what the opposite of faith is, is fear. The opposite of faith is fear of what might happen to us. And what I think what the Bible is always revealing to us and teaching to us through God is that when you know this God, when you know this one, all your problems may not be solved. We had that reading from Job who goes through some trials. All your, your pain may not be immediately extinguished. All your fears may not, um, or all your doubts may not subsist. But if you know this God, there's really a not a lot left to fear. And that is why Jesus asks this question of why do you fear? He doesn't get mad at them for their doubt. He merely asks them fear. And I think if we really look at the moments and when our faith goes the lowest, is that it's not doubt that's sort of pounding us at that moment, but it's actually fear of what may or may not be true. That, at least for me, that fear puts me into more of a place of suspense than doubt does. Doubt's really not all that interesting. Um, you know, you, you meet people who are like, let me tell you about my doubts. And it's like, really? This is like telling me about your hypocrisy. It's just sort of the nature of being human. But if people want to tell you about your fears, be right to listen. Because our fears say a lot about us. Our fears are also what can control us. Why are you afraid? 
And so the next great thing is the great sort of um, commotion amongst them, and they ask, who is this? Which is the question the gospel is asking. The wind and sea obey him. Earlier, they actually asked in the gospel the people around him, what is this? Now the question is turned to who is this? What Jesus is sort of modeling for them is that, that as we live in a world of power, all actual power is sort of on loan from him. And so we have the God who's in the story with us in the, in the great storm, the God who brings about the great calm, and the God who sort of leads us to this question of who is this, which I think is sort of core for today's text. The feeding scene sort of brings up many of the same things as well, that, that Jesus is sort of one who sees people and has compassion on them. When he sees them and has compassion, the first thing he does is he begins to teach them. For they are like sheep without a shepherd. And when he teaches them, it goes late into the evening and the disciples come to him and they say, why don't you send them away so that they can go buy some food? And Jesus says to them, well, you feed them. Now, I think that there's a lot that can go into when Jesus speaks to his disciples, well, you feed them. Christianity has made it a goal and a practice throughout the world to make sure that people go without food. It's not a goal we've achieved and that we'll most likely never achieve on the side of sort of Jesus bringing his kingdom back to earth, but the you feed them, you can sit with that for a long time. But that's not only that, there's this, there's this way in which they're being invited into what Jesus is doing in the world. You know, that, that to be a part of what God is doing in the world is to almost be a part of the wrench that's thrown into the system. It's to be a part of, of sort of the, the way that sort of everything gets unplugged and changed and brought into a new way. And what happens in these scenes is that we sort of see the curtain drawn back on sort of the way the world is to the way the world's meant to be. And to the way that the world's going to be restored. Lack of food, disease, uh, demon possession, storms at seas that put people into fear. What happens is what we see Jesus is sort of pulling back the curtain on the world at times to say that this is not the way it's meant to be, and someday it won't. And so what he says when you feed them, he invites us into being people who can see the way that the world's meant to be. I don't think Jesus is just morally telling us and the disciples, get your chef's hat on and keep feeding people. What he's saying is that the deep reality of the world is something that you too will participate in. They have five loaves and two fish. And he sits them out. and, And the interesting thing about the way he sits them out compared to the sort of like the book of Exodus is they almost sit out in a military like position. He divides them into sort of groups that would be almost closer. And then the interesting part about this feeding, not the one later in Mark, is that this one says only men at the end, and the other one says women and children. 5,000 men were fed. The other one brings 4,000 as the one later in Mark. Um, That it almost feels like that Jesus is building sort of this um, group of people who will bring about the completion of his mission here on earth. 
or not bring about it, but will be part of the foretaste of it, to go out into sort of the battle, into the world, and to bring peace to it. And so what the disciples become is sort of these waiters for this hungry world, and they bring out the food, and there's 12 baskets sort of left, which should bring to mind the 12 tribes of Israel and sort of the things that go into that. But the last sort of point on this The question is, what does it all mean for us today? Think that that what we find and what these stories preserve for us of who Jesus is and how we are to answer the question of who he is, is that God, when he comes in the form of Jesus or is in Jesus, the world begins to act in ways that put it back together. There's this, what he says in the storm, or when he walks on the sea, sorry, after the second feeling, feeding, is he says sort of, I am, it's me. Which would draw the disciples to the point of seeing that Jesus is God incarnate. These stories have a lot to them, but I think the main point for them is sort of what we started with, is to begin to answer the question of that Jesus is God. Now that may seem like we're Christians and we've got it. But I think these questions for us in the, in, the, the, in the scriptures that are preserved for us, who is this one? Why are you afraid? Um, we don't have enough food, count it, are there so we continually ask the questions before us. Have we discerned and found that Jesus is God? And when we answer that question in places of fear, in places of doubt, in places of discomfort, in places of wondering how are we going to feed this many people, we actually begin to find God there, that God is in those places with us. God has become one of us and walked into those places. And so may these questions and may these stories ever be before us reminding us of the simple but profound truth that Jesus is God. Let us pray. God, we looked at storms and feedings today. To say that the first century world was a world confused about who you are would be to forget that our world is a world confused about who you are. We have many that would shun your name. We have many who hate your name. We have many who would invoke your name for their own purposes alone. But what is it for us to become like those who come to the side of the shore you have compassion on and see as sheep without a shepherd, and to receive teaching from you, to receive feeding from you, to know that like the disciples in the storm, that we will never be forsaken, never be lost, never be without, 
because in Christ you hold the keys to death. May that be good news in life for us. Amen. One of the things as we talk about those texts being very thick with meaning is, is that that, that um, feeding story mimics communion in a lot of ways. And in Mark's gospel, it says he, he, he takes bread and he breaks it and he gives it. Same words for both instances. And so, and so on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, 